This is a section of Scripture that fits together very nicely. Within these chapters, God's sovereignty is raised, and we get somewhat of a glimpse of how to understand it. And I think you'll be somewhat surprised at the overall purpose of God's sovereignty. It is far larger. I'll just give you a little advance notice. It's far larger and bigger than just our brief 70 years. Amen? God's sovereignty is concerned with His, his, his overall redemptive plan for humankind. Let's see what it involves here. Isaiah 13 through 27 is a, a good portrait of how the uh, nation of Judah and its capital city dealt with God's sovereignty. Here's what I'm saying: they were surrounded by about um, there were about ten cities that were that were really threatening them, and often these ten cities were being threatened by what is known as the Assyrian surge. Remember last week I told you that the predominant world power of that region was Assyria. They were the ones breathing down everybody's neck. Well, in these chapters, there are ten cities listed. And they were all a threat to Jerusalem. And God goes through these cities and He talks about how they're really no threat at all from His perspective. Let me walk you through them briefly. You can jot down some notes from what you see on the screen behind me. I'm going to list these ten cities briefly. We're going to work our way through chapter 24 somewhat quickly. But I want you to see how God looks at these cities. They were a threat to Jerusalem. They were surrounding the nation. They seemed like they were their predominant power. They were trying to make alliances with, with different neighbors so they could protect themselves from Assyria. Lots of things were on the earthly horizontal scale. But here's how God saw it. Here's His perspective. Let's talk about Babylon just for a second. Look at Isaiah 13. Uh, primarily verse, uh, verses 17 through 19. Now what I'll list on the screen is like the entire section of Scripture that talks about those cities. But I'll draw your attention to verses 17 through 19. Here's what God says about Babylon. See, I will stir up against them the Medes. And they don't care for silver. They have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They'll have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Speaking there of of no return. Now, Babylon, more than most nations, took a long time to fall. Uh, Several different reigns were involved in uh, destroying Babylon. So you see here, God was saying, listen guys, though it may take a while, I will send the Medes and the Persians in and they will destroy Babylon. Now let me just give you a a glimpse and a couple of things. In these chapters, 13 through 27, uh, when he mentions these ten cities, there is an immediate prophetic fulfillment for most of them. And I've listed them on on our website. There's a, a link to a document called The Extra Point. And I've done some time there and listed some... Uh, prophetic fulfillment, not just immediate, but also eventual of these ten cities. Because there's a lot of information that I think will really help you. So go to our website, click on the extra point under this week's message, and you'll see a document called the Ten Cities of Isaiah 13 through 27. And use that perhaps in your study group time and your personal time to understand what God was saying immediately, but also eventually. Because there's a number of implications about this in regards to that day, capital D, are you with me, that God is going to bring. We know that Babylon will be resurged, shall we say, at the very end. It's going to be a real threat to God's people at the very end. It's one of those cities that's going to come against Israel. So there's lots of things in these scriptures about this. But look how God sees these cities. First of all, He's going to destroy Babylon through the Medes and the Persians. Look at the next city, Assyria, in chapter 14. 
Look about verses 14 uh, through, let's see, 24 through 27. Chapter 14, 24 to 27. Are you there? It says, Surely, as I have planned, so it will be. You see the word plan there? As I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people. His burden removed from their shoulders. In other words, the folks that are a problem to you now, don't worry, I've got them handled. Verse 26, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed... And who can thwart him? What an awesome verse about his sovereignty. Do you see that? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Well, here's Assyria with all of their domination, obviously a pawn in God's hands. The next nation is Philistia. Chapter 14, about verse 31. Don't lose me, okay? Stay with me. Keep your Bibles open there. Look what he says here about Philistia. He says, Wail, O gate, howl, O city. Melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke that comes from the north... And there is not a straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? Here's the answer. The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. Felicia really had no chance as well. And when it talks about someone coming from the north, he speaks there of of how often Assyria, which was actually to the east, would come in over the Fertile Crescent that was kind of north of that land. So they would actually go west and then up a little bit and come down. So Isaiah here was well aware of not just the prophetic implications, but the geography of the land as well. So here these nations are no problem to God. Let's keep reading here somewhat quickly. Look at the next nation of Moab. Check out Isaiah 16, about verse 13. This is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. In other words, already spoken. God's already given His word that Moab is not going to be a problem. Now the Lord says, Within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised and her survivors will be very few and feeble. There's not really a known date for the downfall of Moab, but we do know this. They were given three years warning. God said, you know what, in three years, Moab, the end will come. God keeps going through these cities one by one. Look at Damascus in the next portion of the Scripture. Isaiah chapter 17, 1 through 3. Isaiah chapter 17. Just keep reading here. It says this, An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aor will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. Do you get the picture of a desolate pasture land? There's nobody there. Sheep can just come in, and there's no threat of anything happening to them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. Here God is saying that about Damascus and some of those northern people above Jerusalem. The day is coming when you will no longer be. You won't be a threat to my people. Let's continue just real briefly here. Here's Cush, which is actually um, Ethiopia area. He says here in, in chapter 18, about verse 7, At that time, gifts we brought to the Lord Almighty. Now, notice this phrase. This is an interesting way to put this. He says that gifts we brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth-skinned, speaking here of Ethiopians probably, 
from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers, the gifts we brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. He says here, you know what, there's going to be a turnaround in the land of Cush. In other words, you were living for yourself, but I want to actually take what you've done and you're going to use it for the Lord Almighty. And you're going to find that in several of these scriptures about these different cities, that God actually takes people from these cities and uses them for His purposes. In Babylon, He did the same thing. There were some scriptures there where He's going to pull people from the cities of Babylon and make them into, uh, gather them as with all the nations. So God is working out an, an incredibly sovereign purpose here. Look at uh, Egypt next, which is just south of, of Cush here. Look what he says here. Isaiah chapter 19. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah 19. It's talking about Egypt here. In that day the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. Do you see that? That wasn't the way it was right then. But God's saying, a day is coming when Judah, you'll be, you'll be a terrifying factor to the Egyptians. In fact, if you keep reading down through his part about Egypt, this is an amazing uh, set of verses. Look at verses 23 and 24. Let me show you how sovereign God is in establishing His purposes. Isaiah 19, 23 and 24. In that day... And here I think he moves a prophetic fulfillment. He says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt. The Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. Do you see that? Reminds you of Genesis 12:3, doesn't it? When God said, Abraham, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. Here it is, many nations that are considered pagan nations. One day, God's going to use them to, to gather people together to worship Him. Look what verse 25 says. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Isn't that amazing? No one of that time thought that. They're thinking, God, they're all against us. But God's saying, listen, a day's coming when Egypt, like all the other nine cities, will just be pawns in my hands. I'll draw worshipers from these cities. What are you worried about? Let's keep going just briefly. He talks about Edom in chapter uh, 21, verses 11 and 12. Look at chapter 21. Interesting part about Edom. It's got very few verses about it, and here's why. Look at verse 11 of chapter 21. An oracle concerning Duma... The Hebrew word for silence. So it's, it's fitting that Edom would have very little written about it, wouldn't you? It's, it's designed to say there's not much to say here. It's a time of silence. The end is near. It's almost like a deafening judgment is on the way. But look what he says. Someone calls to me from Seir. Seir is actually in Edom. So that's why we know this prophecy here concerns Edom. Watchman, what is left of the night? What is left of the night? The watchman replies, morning is coming, but also the night. In other words, there's a break coming, but hey, you know what? Judgment's not over officially. I think that's a prophetic statement as well, speaking of the end time. If you would ask, then ask, and come back yet again. There's not much at all about Edom. Except that God often moves, and I'll say more about this in that document on the website, God often moves in times when we think there's not much being said. It's the routine day-to-day, but God is still, He hasn't fallen asleep, He's still active, He's working His plans, His purposes. Let's keep going to Arabia here just briefly. You see this next section of verses of chapter 21. These were a nomadic kind of people called the Dedanites. 
And actually, historically, we know they were chased through the desert by several different rulers. Look what God says in verse 16 about this, this nation. This is what the Lord says to me. Within one year, as a servant bound by contract would count it, all the pomp of Kedar will come to an end. And the survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of Kedar, they'll be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Here it is, indicating that many of these nomadic tribes were chased around the desert for about a year. And then they were ended. And God brought their destruction through other uh, nations who were part of this Assyrian surge. And then one of the last ones is this nation called Tyre, a very interesting nation. Look with me at the end of chapter 23. There's, in between, of course, here, there's some other nations mentioned that are repetitive, like Egypt again and Jerusalem, of course. But these are the ten pagan foreign nations that God talks about. Tyre concludes this list, and look what it says. He says, at the end of 70 years, verse 17 of chapter 23, at the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. And I think he's speaking there of those 70 years of captivity by, of Jerusalem. And notice what he says here. She will return to her hires a prostitute and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. So how does that happen, Todd? If you'll read the book of Ezra, we know that though Tyre suffered great loss before the Jerusalem, before the uh, Jews were taken into exile, when the Jews were actually released, in Ezra we find that they actually used the city of Tyre to help rebuild the temple. That's what God's speaking of here. God's saying, listen... I'm so in control that I'm going to use a foreign nation and their success to help rebuild my temple. He says it will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her prophets will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. Isn't that amazing? Now that's just a quick run through of ten nations that at the time, in that 700 year B.C. range, they were all a threat to Judah. Every one of them. And they were making alliances. You know how last week different ones were trying to align themselves with Ephraim and Aram. And, and they were trying to make sure it was a survivor kind of show. We've just got to make sure we survive. But God wasn't threatened by it at all. God didn't think twice about these ten nations. And He lists for us here all the different ways that, watch this, they were pawns. Not a problem. Are you with me? It reminds me of the phrase in Isaiah 6. God rules seated on the throne. It's only His human creatures that worry so much. (laughs) God's really not worried at all. He's got everything under control. He's absolutely, independently uh, sovereign over the affairs of men. And what's so neat is to see how much of the sovereign acts of God are designed to bring the the collection of worshipers together. Now, let me just take a minute and just put some shoe leather on this. Because you say, Todd, I understand that God is sovereign. I understand what you're saying. I see what it means. I see how He acts. But it seems like we should have some choice in this somewhere. Don't we have a choice in the matter? That's a good question. And there goes the debate of the centuries, right? Where does God's sovereignty start? and Where does man's choice begin? Or do we have a choice? And I'm not here to answer that question, except to say to you this. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a well-respected theologian, seems to illustrate the tension between the two this way. He says, picture an ocean liner from you know, New York to Liverpool. That ocean liner has its destination set. The end goal is already predetermined. Are you with me? 
Now, on the deck of that ship, there are loads of passengers who perhaps have choice in various things, but their choices, truthfully, don't affect the, the indetermination. Now, that's a loose analogy. You could probably poke holes in it to some degree, but Tozer's trying to say that there is, in his mind, some sense of, of tension we have to learn to live with, with God's sovereignty and man's choice. From this side of the aisle, so to speak, from the human side, it looks like we have a choice. From God's side of the aisle, it's predetermined, already handled. And I like the way one pastor said, he said, if you try to explain this, uh, you'll lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. And we have to find some kind of place to live with understanding God has a predetermined, uh, He's sovereign, He is in control without advice, without a need for help. He knows where the world is going and He's taking the world there. He's taking the world to a place where there's a collection, a group of gatherers of worshipers from every tribe and nation, tongue and language. And they're going to give Him ultimate glory. You with me? That's the end goal. And Isaiah talks about this. He says, you know what? There's going to be folks from Egypt, Arabia, Moab. God said, these nations that are threatening you, I've got them all under control. I'm even going to redeem the people out of them. And yet somewhere in that, from our side of the fence, shall we say, it looks like we have something to do with it at times, doesn't it? Now, now this is what I'm talking about. When you're at that place, that tension, be okay with that. Be okay with a God that you can't figure out. Because anything less is not much of a God. Imagine if you were Corey Ten Boom and you survived Ravensbrook, the concentration camp where 92,000 women were murdered. You're trying to put your hands around the sovereignty of God and how the Jewish nation, even in that time, underwent such severe persecution. She watched her sister Betsy die in one of those camps, uh, one of those hospitals there at the camps. And somewhere between the 50s and the 80s of the 1900s, she traveled the globe and spoke about her experiences at Ravensbrook. And she made this comment when folks would ask her about bitterness, about resentment, about how she felt if there really was a God and why He let it happen. She said this, and I quote, The higher view we have of His sovereignty, that our times are in His hands, the greater will be the possibility to live in victory. In fact, church, I would say this to you, that the higher view you have of God, the deeper your commitment to Him will be. And much of the reason that we have a shallow American church is because most of us have God figured out. God's manageable to you. And you've got it all under control and it makes a lot of sense to you. And so your manageable God leaves you with a commitment that's just barely... Uh, enough to get you through difficult times, perhaps. Are, are you are you hear what I'm saying? God's sovereignty has to leave us in a place sometimes where we're like, you know what? This is beyond me. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament said this. He said, His ways are beyond tracing out. God is is His. Uh, Paul said in in Romans that the oh the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I want to bring you to a place this morning. I want to encourage you to be okay with the spiritual tension of sovereignty and choice. And just let God 
be God as if He needs our approval. You know what I'm saying? But let us just be humans and then let God do what He does best. Run the universe. And run it in light of its eventual, ultimate goal. A gathering of worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue who will give ultimate glory to God. It's interesting how the Lord has allowed Rick's um, messages and some things he's been teaching us to really dovetail with, uh, nicely with Isaiah, isn't it? How you see God's ultimate redemptive plan and, his, and our responsibility as New Testament believers in light of the ultimate mission, how, how that's just all part of God's plan. He's using us the same way to reach unreached people groups so that one day God will have a collection of people, trophies of grace that will give Him ultimate glory. Now when you think about how that tension works in your life, I want to bring you just three more scriptures to show you how sovereign God is. You've seen it behind me for a few minutes here. Let's just look at these real briefly and then we'll be done. Isaiah 25. As he closes out these last three or four chapters after listing the ten cities, there's a song of praise that breaks out of Isaiah's mouth. It starts off somewhat uh, difficult, kind of uh, morbid as he talks about the earth's devastation, but it goes into a, a real song of praise. Look at Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You and praise Your name for in perfect faithfulness. Do you see that? God didn't drop the ball one time. He didn't, you know, bat 9.99. He didn't do everything right except with you. He just kind of messed up with you. God has been perfect in faithfulness. Especially in regard to what He says here. Things planned long ago. Look at verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty, speaking of Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Notice the word all there. Do you see that? A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I think this is a prophetic portion of Scripture here, speaking of that final day. On this mountain, He'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. In other words, this, this covering, this, this thing that's helping us not see very clearly, God's going to destroy that, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Look at the next verse. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isn't that awesome? There's a day coming when God will bring all nations together. And He'll remove Israel's reproach. That's just how sovereign He is. He is actually controlling and working the entire earth, all the pagan nations, not just Israel, for His ultimate end. Look at Isaiah 26, verses 12 through 15. Let's read these together. Lord, You established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, You have done for us. That's a great phrase, isn't it? We think we accomplish things. The truth is God does it for us. O Lord, our God, other lords that besides You have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honor. And these other rulers, they are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. Isn't that a great prophetic Old Testament verse? Only Jesus Christ ever rose from the dead. He stands alone as the only victor over death. It says here, you punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. And then verse 15, look at this. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. Think about that. How has God enlarged the nation that He chose back in Genesis 12? He enlarged it by bringing all of these heathen nations under His control and redeeming people from every one of them. 
He's enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for whom? For yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. So God is working to an ultimate goal. And then look at Isaiah 27. The last two verses of this entire section actually. Not just of this last chapter. Look what he says here. This is how he closes out these 14 or so chapters speaking of his sovereignty. These are incredibly insightful verses. Here's what Isaiah said. In that day the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt. In other words, He will shake. He'll kind of uh, settle things. But like you would do wheat, you know, from, the, from different parts of that uh, grain and stuff that some of it's good and some is bad. God's going to go to the threshing floor. He's going to shake things out. And you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. You see that trumpet sound there? That, that's the sopar, that, that trumpet that calls you to battle. Those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt. And catch that phrase. All those Israelites have thought, man, we're history, God. We've been captured. We're done for. He says, actually, you'll come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. God said, you're not done for. I will rescue you. And there is an implication here, by the way. I've been reading some scholars and commentaries that in these two verses, there's also the implication that would tie into other verses in these chapters that says God's not only going to bring the exiled Israelites from Assyria and Egypt, but God's going to bring those who even in Assyria and Egypt who are, who are foreigners. He'll bring even some of them to this place of, of worship. And you see that God's overall eventual goal is the collection, the gathering of worshipers for His name. Now here's why that's striking. Listen very carefully. That's striking because often we want to make God's sovereignty about us. Listen very carefully, First Family. We want to make what He does, whether we understand it or not, or whether it makes sense or not, we want to make it about us. And I think this is not something done as an evil act or to rebel against God, but it's a natural human reaction. When, when someone dies, when a bad thing happens, when, when things are tight, we try to make sure that it makes sense within our time frame. But I want to say something to you. God's sovereignty is far larger than your 70 years. God's sovereignty is focused on this day. When the entire world will finally see His Son as the victor. And every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And they'll say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's the rest of the verse? To the glory of God the Father. There's a very theocentric day coming when it's not about you or me at all. That's what God is working for. So... Someone perhaps in, a, in their 70 years, they could have a really rough experience. Their, their situation could be difficult. But in the end scheme of things, the eventual goal of God's sovereignty, that may be the best way to accomplish that. Say, Todd, I need proof of that. Read Hebrews 11. Read Hebrews 11. The list of those martyrs All of them by faith. But here's the verse. It says at the very end of this chapter, none of them received the promise. I mean, when the knife was at their throat, when they were in front of the lions, when they were hurled off the cliffs, God didn't rescue them at the last minute. They died. They were killed. 
thanks God, your sovereignty didn't really work well this time. You said all things were together for good. Man, I'm at the bottom of a cliff dead. Are you with me? You see, guys, we want to work God's sovereignty into our 70 years. And God's far bigger than that. He's working on a redemptive timetable that spans history. That's the God that we know and serve. That's the sovereign nature of God. It's, it's, there's a, a microcosm of it here in these chapters relating to Israel. And on the world stage of the day, a macrocosm is happening. God is not upset or worried about Iraq or Iran or North Korea. God's not even concerned too much. Let me rephrase that. God's not stressed out about the elections coming up. God's not a Huckabee fan or a, a Obama fan. He's not. And God's just not stressed about the things that we think are because He's working on a far larger scale. He's in complete, independent, absolute control. He's seated on the throne. Are you with me? That's the God we serve. That's the sovereign nature of God, and that should bring us great comfort. Not that we'll get every answer before our life spans up. But that at the end of time, God's purposes prevail. His sovereignty is really all about Him. He's trying to, he is bringing glory to Himself, as the verse says. So I'm going to ask you just a very honest question this morning. Whatever is going on in your life right now, that you're hoping you can make sense of because of God's sovereignty. And that's not a... A futile effort, per se. But whatever you're trying to make sense of, could you live with this? Just trust God to make sense of it in His time. What if God's prerogative, and it could be, was to use whatever's going on a hundred years from now? Would you be okay with that? Or 200 years from now? Or what if you never really know why? What if in your short amount of years on earth it just never makes sense? Could you let God just do what He does best? Work everything for His good and glory? So on that day there is a host of people worshiping Him. From every tribe and nation and tongue. Are you with me? That's the view of sovereignty that Isaiah talks about. It's the kind of view that I think George and Catherine have really uh, uh, worked hard to get to. And I think probably okay to say, still working on that, aren't you guys? Why don't you come with me for a minute and let's share a bit about your story and then we'll be done today. George and Catherine, as you know, have been at First Samuel for a couple of years now. And uh, they have an interesting story. You know, a lot of you know George and Catherine. What you may not know is that uh, George lost his father when you were 11, and he lost his mother when he was 14. And even prior to their deaths, he was uh, in foster home since he was six, weren't you? Uh, tell us about that, and just, just real succinctly, George, could you? Well, one of the hard things about that is when you're six years old and to 16, and you're living in a foster home, you never really understand why this is going on. You never understand what's going on. And it's a real challenge just to try to you know, get along each day and to see exactly what, if anything, makes sense out of this. And if it hadn't been for the foster parents allowing kids into their home, 
then uh, I know exactly where I would be. There's, there's no doubt about it. I, I know my personality, and so does God. Uh, out of my graduating class in high school, there were ten of us that ran together quite a bit. Uh, two of those are now dead. Uh, two of those are in jail. And I stand before you now as, as God working in, in my life and knowing where to have me and how to have me. And I know that we all believe that God has a promise that we will become Christians as he wants us to be in the time. But there's a possibility, I believe, in all that that it would take a lot longer for me to ever come to know his son. So I'm very grateful to God for working that. Do I know all the answers to the why as as an eight-year-old boy living with other foster kids of why uh, he wanted me to live in a foster home? But I know now that I'm a little bit more open to come alongside somebody who's hurting Mm -hmm. and say, I understand, because I do. Yeah, let's be even more specific, George. I know that when you were six, I think you said, was it your father or your mother was not? Was it your father an alcoholic? My father was a uh, Korean War veteran, and he was in the VA hospital most of the time. Okay. But my mother was an alcoholic. That's what it was. I'm sorry. And so even at six and seven and eight, you would spend some time at home, but then when your mother would have episodes, you would be put into a foster home, right? Right. And that went on that way for years. All the way from six to 18. And here's what's strikingly stunning, that every time he was placed into a foster home, it was with the same foster family, wasn't it? Every time. Even in 18, and, and then we found that his parents had both passed away, they placed you permanently then in that same foster home, wasn't it? It was a wish of my mother that I would be with them. So the last four years before I uh, went off to become a soldier is what I ended up living with them that, during that time. And that need how God <clears throat> sovereignly oversaw George's life to give him some stability when there was very little all around you. And I believe that meant so much to you. You named your first daughter. Yes, our first daughter, Lura, is named after her, my foster mother for the work that, uh, my way of being able to honor her for the work she did in my life. Isn't that neat how God just controlled that? He didn't need to ask if George was okay with that or if your mom and dad were okay. He just said, I want to do what I want to do. Speaking of kids, I know that um, you guys have two kids. And... Uh, um, I don't think our church really knows, though, a lot, of t- a lot of the pain that may go along with the whole child thing with you two. And they probably see that and say, oh, two daughters, that's awesome. But there's a lot of pain, I think, just tucked away in regards to children and, and you and Catherine. Would that be okay to say? Yes. I think, Catherine, you have a little bit to share about God's sovereignty. And maybe it's not quite so figure-outable right now sometimes when that in is it. Actually, we have uh, somewhere between three and five children. Um, our, uh, we don't need this. Well, I think we need it for the CD. Folks will probably want to hear what you're saying at some point, too. Um, our, it took, uh, we, we struggled with infertility for many years. Um, it took five years to get our first daughter, and there's a long story involved with that. The uh, second pregnancy was a result of uh, fertility medication, and um, that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Um, Carrie was just a gift of God's grace to us. Uh, we can't quite figure that one out, but we, we love her. And um, after 10 years, uh, we just decided we needed to get off the emotional roller coaster, and uh, we decided we'd look at adoption. Um, about that time, uh, the world was becoming aware of the uh, orphanage situation in Romania, and we thought that we could uh, be a part of the solution. Uh, it would not only bless us, but it would also be a way of of helping um, children that were in some desperate situations in Romania. And um, 
the church that we were involved in um, had an association with an adoption agency, and um, we began the adoption process, and we knew we didn't have the thousands of dollars that it was going to take to do an international adoption, but we had the $25 it took to start the application. And so God just opened up door after door, step after step. It was just the, the miracles involved were just uh, overwhelming and, and affirming this was the direction we were supposed to go. Um, until it came to time for placement. Um, the first uh, boy that um, was uh, offered to us and we readily accepted was everything that we had prayed for. We had prayed for some very specific things, and he was everything that we had asked for. And uh, it's never supposed to happen, but he was assigned to two agencies, and the other agency placed him with another family before our agency could respond. Um, and the second uh, boy that was offered, um, we were feeling pretty desperate. We better jump on this right away, even though it wasn't um, the things that we had been looking for. And uh, I went to uh, Bucharest to uh, finish the, uh, the adoption and to bring him home. And I got there and found out that the, uh, the agency had lied about some things in terms of his uh, health condition, uh, things that we just felt we could not live with. And they had said that they would never place a, a child with this particular condition without consultation with the, the adoptive family, but yet they were going to do that. We found out that they had bribed the, his parents who were both alive and living and living together and had other children and that they had bribed them to relinquish their parental rights. And there were just several other things and just felt we couldn't proceed with um, that adoption. And I think you were at the embassy. Uh, yeah, I was, I was at the embassy. Uh, we were supposed to be finishing up the, uh, the paperwork for the passport and uh, changing the birth certificate and that sort of stuff. And I just said, we cannot do this. And you find information out you didn't know and you realize things just aren't going to happen and you're left with an extra plane ticket. And to this day, I mean, this is uh, uh, this is painful, isn't it? I know we've talked in the past about some of that. Yeah, and and every time um, it comes up, and it does periodically, you know, I just feel that I have to make a choice. Do I believe about God's character based on my limited perspective, my own personal experience, that either God is not in control or God is in control but he's not loving enough to do the right thing? Or do I choose to believe what Scripture says, that God is in control and that He is lovingly working out all things for His own glory? Amen. That's a choice all of us have to make, isn't it? And I appreciate you guys because you picture for me, in some sense, God's sovereign in your life kind of makes sense, George. The stable foster home, it worked out well, you name your daughters. Like, that's a neat thing. God is so sovereign. And yet, in the case of your children, it's still... Hard to figure that out, isn't it? You wanted to adopt, and yet, even to this day, it's like, okay, God, I just trust you. You know best. So you picture for me, being able to walk on both sides of that fence sometime, and I appreciate your honesty this morning. Thank you very much for sharing with our church. Can we thank George thank and you. Catherine for their authenticity? That's the kind of attitude that Isaiah is asking for, not only from the readers here, but he's asking of that from us. To let God's sovereignty be bigger than our lifespan. And to trust the Lord, not only for the now, but for the then.
He's independently, absolutely in control. Our job is to trust. Amen. Let's pray, shall we?